With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to talk to him. One of the great arts of conversation. Sounds charming. The only thing that sounds better is the radio. Well, I tune right in at midnight. Attended to the radio waves. I hold my thoughts till they were just right. Always listen to the Bradley J. I was open to views with ears on the news. As they talked, I was focused so much. I called on the phone in my car in my home. Came out in control and in touch. The middle, the sound, and the thoughts that surround. When they said, speak up, I didn't walk. You are Jay talking. We are live midnight to five and history fans and political fans rejoice. We have James Conroy here, author of Lincoln's White House, the People's House in wartime. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I understand that uh, it's a pretty crowded field when you write about Lincoln and you actually cut through there and you won a major prize. So two questions there. Tell me about the prize and how did you manage to cut through the field? Well, the, I was honored and surprised, frankly, to get the Lincoln Prize, as it's called, uh, which is given by the Gilder Lehrman Institute in New York for the best book of the year on Lincoln uh, or the Civil War era. I shared it actually with another writer. Um, I... Um, I'm not a professional historian. I've been a lawyer for more years than I'd like to say, uh, but it's always been an ambition to write history, and as I've uh, scaled back on my legal practice, I've had the chance to do that, and I really enjoy it. So that's a huge thing for a rookie to get a prize like that. Yeah, I was pleased to say the least, and uh, you know, um, uh, I don't know that the prize has been given to a lot of uh, people who are not professional historians. Um, so, Did you a, feel insecure because you weren't a professional historian and work all the harder because of that? Yeah, it's, it's my second, it was my second book, and uh, the first one was also about Lincoln in a particular uh, aspect, and uh, that gave me a little, a little experience and a little more confidence uh, with it, but um, I've always loved history, wanted to do this from probably the age of eight or nine, and um, got the opportunity to do it in my older years, um, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. You chose Lincoln twice. Yeah. And what do you love about Lincoln? Well, really, frankly, it wasn't so much about Lincoln, but more the subject matter. Uh, the first book was about uh, Lincoln at a peace conference with very senior Confederate leaders toward the end of the war, trying to find a negotiated end to that war, which nobody nobody had written about at book length. Uh, that book is called Our One Common Country. So that got me started. And uh, having started down that road, I built a kind of a, a following or a, um, 
a foundation in, in Lincoln aficionados, of which there are many, and I thought it would make sense to, to do another as well. And uh, Lincoln's White House had not been written about in the way I approach it. And how did you approach it? Well, um, everyone's written about the strategies and the military thinking and the political issues and slavery and the rest uh, to the point of exhaustion, I think. And no one had written a book about the person uh, in the White House and the other persons in the White House uh, in Lincoln's time and uh, what their relationships were, what it was like to live there, to work there, to be entertained there to do business there, and uh, it turned out to be a, a fascinating subject. You mentioned to me before we started that, and I guess this is for real, literally, Lincoln's the most written about person except for Jesus? Correct, yeah. That, that's a fact? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, as I recall, it's, it's something over 13,000 books have been written about Lincoln. Obviously not all by Americans. What's the global fascination with Lincoln? Well, I think that people really around the world uh, know Lincoln and see him as the common man, you know, put in that great place of responsibility and performing it so well that people, I think, can re relate to that and uh, are attracted to that idea of an uneducated, backwoods boy who winds up literally born in a log cabin and winds up in the White House. How much of that is true? That early story. Was that three-sided log cabin? Was that part of the myth? I don't know how many sides it had, but there was an actual log cabin. I can't remember. He could not have been any poorer. He was uh, at the very bottom of the social scale. And he did really read by, you know, the book, yeah. by the fire. Yeah. What do you suppose uh, about his family, her situation motivated him to do all that reading and studying and yeah, and become who he was? Well, well he was a brilliant man. Uh, Really, I don't think he had more than a couple of years of education in a one-room schoolhouse, basically learning how to read and write and do simple arithmetic. That's all the education he had. Everything else was his own reading, um, talking to people, absorbing what he could, and just literally worked his way up from nothing to to be uh, president of the United States. Did he latch onto any particular philosophers and their philosophies early on that guided him later? Well, you know, I haven't focused on his early life any more than any other. All right, I can move gen. on. Yeah. Move on from that. So the book starts out, and it's pretty evident right away that you deal in extreme detail, which is excellent because you get a, you can almost see the scene start to move behind your eyes when you're reading your book, you can, and you actually can kind of smell it. You have so much detail, and you talk about the dust, et cetera, that it almost engages, well, all the senses. Can you set that same scene that I enjoyed on the first page or two about he's riding side by side with Buchanan and there's, there's dust on Buchanan's feet and yeah. the first page is designed to make us understand the danger of the time and the, the threat that was all around DC being really a southern city. Right. Can you, and, and there were Seven in the scene. Seven states had seceded. More thinking about it. Right. There were secessionist drilling going on by yep. soldiers. Can yep. you paint that picture? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. But I, I do make a serious effort to 
be cinematic in a way with, with the book and other books. Um, again, there's a lot of uh, books written about grand thoughts, but this is really about the people and the, the day-to-day intimate lives of these people. But yeah, it was a frightening scene in Washington at that time uh, of Lincoln's inaugural. The war had not begun, but uh, a number of states had already seceded. They were seceding one by one every couple of weeks. Um, there were Southern militia drilling in the streets in Washington City, as they called it then. Um, the city was basically surrounded by uh, what would later be Confederate military. There were thousands of armed militia across the river in Virginia. There were other thousands in Maryland, which was a southern state. And um, there were only a few hundred uh, soldiers of all kinds in Washington. Somebody said the Marine Band was the most combat-worthy unit in the city. Yeah, and they were out. They were way out in Indian country, to quote, quote, far away from any ability to get anywhere quickly, not near a, Correct. a railroad or anything. Right. It was a very small army to start with, and most of it was out in the West fighting Indians and no way to get to Washington in a matter of a week or two. So uh, a very sobering uh, situation in that regard, um, and that persisted really throughout the war because Washington was, and sometimes in some ways still is, a southern city um, full of southern sympathizers. Um, I was amazed to see in my research that, as the book describes, that there were actually large numbers of paroled Confederate soldiers kind of wandering through the city who had been captured and released with the promise of not fighting anymore and came to Washington because they were looking for work or something to do. And you would just walk down the street in Washington and see these Confederate soldiers, you know, in threes and fours and fives, wandering around the streets. Um, were they in uniform, by the way? Yeah. Like, yeah because that's the only, only clothes they had. Exactly. Yeah, such as there were their uniforms. And there were also Confederate officers. There's a, a vignette about a Confederate officer invited to sit on the floor of the United States Senate as a courtesy in his Confederate uniform while they were debating some some bill. So it's a bizarre situation fraught with danger. And there was no Secret Service yeah, in the White House. Yeah, total lack of security of any kind. No uh, police until the very end of Lincoln's time in the White House. There was, when the war began, a military sentry, two military sentries pacing in front of the door. But... They were more decorative than useful, as one of them said. They didn't stop anybody. They didn't question anybody. It so was an open door. You could just go in, anyone right. off the street. Correct. <laughs> uh, not only could you just walk in and sit down on the green room and write a letter if you wanted to, but um, you could also go upstairs to the office wing, which is where it was in those days. There was no West Wing then and no Oval Office. The uh, president's office was upstairs in the residence And uh, people could just walk up there and um, wait in the lobby, wait in the waiting room, and um, might come back for a day or two until they could get in. But they would get in and see the president for five minutes in the middle of a civil war uh, with with nothing to protect him from anybody. How long—you say that went on for how long till the end of the— 
Yeah, almost his, until uh, the very end of the war. Finally, there was such an outcry among his friends and uh, loved ones that this was crazy, and he was exposing himself recklessly. Um, he allow, he agreed to allow four D.C. police officers to be stationed there in rotation on eight-hour shifts, but they were ne'er-do-wells and drunks and uh, disciplined uh, individuals, uh, uh, meaning in the sense of punishment, not in the sense of... Uh, good behavior. And on the night of the assassination, the one who was assigned to him that day um, went with him to Ford's Theater and then went next door to have a drink, which was when he was assassinated. This is a bit of an aside, but we think of that time as a super violent time, more violent than now. But is that true? I mean, if the president could have basically an open door policy, Mm -hmm. was it really a more violent time? Was it a less violent time even though war was brewing? Well, it's a, that's a good question. It's an interesting point. Um, the war itself was uh, horribly violent. Um, the current estimate of, of total deaths on both sides is, is well over 700,000. Many of those died of disease. Uh, but And that's at a time when the U.S. population was? About a tenth of what it is today, yeah. So 30 million? Yeah, I mean, just it's just astonishing. There's no way for us to absorb that level of loss. It's like, what, like one out of 50 people? Something in lost? that range. I mean, they, they say there was not a village where, you know, the fa- a favorite son wasn't dead. Uh, everybody had, had death in their families. And uh, so that was horribly violent. But there was not the street crime that yeah. there is today. And there was, there was a sense of, I think... Decency? Uh, decency is a good word. A, a sense of... Uh, I don't know if it was religious or moral or ethical or what, but I think there was less fear of violent behavior than uh, no president had been assassinated. Uh, Seward, the secretary of state said, uh, assassination is not an American crime. And uh, people were just shocked when it happened. The, uh, let's, I know that your book does not focus on the building itself, but the building is part of it. And it, there are interesting aspects of the building, the white house. Yeah. Right away. You make a point that it's, in your, by way of your story, that it's really dingy and it hasn't been changed much in 65, 65 years since it was built. Yeah. And uh, can you can you paint that picture for us? Sure. Uh, well, when when the Lincolns moved in, uh, one of their uh, one of Lincoln's three aides, he had th- exactly three staff people as president, all of them in their twenties, all, all from Illinois. Um, one of them said that the White House had the ambiance of a third-class hotel. Uh, Peeling wallpaper, greasy palm prints on the walls, uh, bare rugs, faded curtains, truly a rundown. Nobody even bothered to dust. Right, a a very low-rent kind of place. And um, Mrs. Lincoln uh, took it on herself to renovate. She was the first renovator. I I believe, well, I I would say that there were other you know, upgrades over the years, uh, focused upgrades. But she was the first first lady who actually renovated the White House top to bottom and made it an attractive, um, very well-decorated place. And you actually, and Lincoln referred to the business wing the upstairs as the shop. Correct. Can you describe that? Yeah, um, the... Downstairs, the first floor is very much like it is today, uh, pretty much laid out the same way. 
Um, the second floor uh, was not. Uh, the sort of western two-thirds of the second floor was the family residence where uh, the Lincoln's bedrooms and their sort of living room, uh, library, and the rest were. There were pocket doors, just pocket doors, that separated that from the office wing, which was the eastern third or so of the second floor. What's a pocket door? Well, you, you, you put your hands, the two doors meet together, and you put your hands and you spread them out. You just take them out laterally. You move them out laterally so they kind of slide into the wall. Okay. Um, and, and there was no lock on, on that door. So anybody who felt like it could just slide that door open and walk down the hall into the family quarters, and people did. Um, you know, Mrs. Lincoln would come out of the bedroom, and there's uh, Johnny Schwartz from Cleveland uh, walking down the hall. So, uh, you know, like he was going to buy the place. Um, it's really pretty bizarre. But in the office wing itself, the president's office was there, and the three aides had their workspaces and uh, there was an ante room and um, a waiting room and some other odds and ends. But I, I would tell you that the entire office wing for the President of the United States was smaller than the workspace in a su- substantial post office would be today. Uh, three, three staff people and the President throughout the Civil War. Now, Lincoln's wife, yeah. he, she, she spent a lot of money. Uh, she she we did it. Talk about what she did. She overdid it, I guess. Sure. Well, um, I may be misremembering the exact number, but I think the appropriation f- for that renovation was forty thousand dollars, which was a substantial amount of money in those days. Uh, still a substantial amount, but in those days it was many times what it would be today. Um, and Mrs. Lincoln exceeded that budget within weeks and just kept going. And uh, what are some of the things she did? Yeah, well, when they moved in, I, uh, there was about a dozen serviceable place settings in the, in the dinner table that weren't shipped or mismatched. Uh, she had hundreds of pieces of china handmade in Europe and shipped over with uh, American Eagle in the center, uh, purple uh, border. Beautiful handmade china, and I imagine those are still around. Some of some them. of them are, yeah. I think they can be had for about twenty grand a piece if you're interested. But, uh, <laughs> but wouldn't wouldn't they be in the White House? Uh, well, some of them are, yeah. But collectors have them too. And um, it seems like no presidents entertained at all. They obviously didn't have state visits because it was they didn't take care of the place. Well, um, Lincoln did have some state visits, um, and. I mean, you would think he'd be embarrassed to have, for instance... Yeah, the, sorry about the greasy hand marks. Yeah, right. The Prince Napoleon, <laughs> who was the nephew of the Emperor Napoleon, uh, came right after the Battle of Bull Run in 1861, and they had a dinner for him, and uh, he wrote about it, which is in the book, and he says, you, you walk right into the president's palace, as he calls it, as if you're entering a cafe, which, which <laughs> uh, he couldn't believe, and uh, then he said the president had the bearing of a bootmaker, which he also couldn't believe. What do you um, mean by that? Just this kind of uh, unsophisticated, country, casual. Uh, Big rough hands. Rough hands, no polished speech. You know, this is how Lincoln was. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis knocks him out of the park yeah. in that movie, uh, as from what I can read. Uh, you know, bad grammar, um, uh, no polished manners, really. Uh, very decent, very civil, 
you know, very uh, dignified in and his wise. Way, and wise, but not polished in the least. Um, just a country lawyer in the old school sense. So I guess coming from the log cabin, a little dirt is not a problem for you, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I, uh, he, he actually had... Li- With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lived in a very nice house in Springfield, Illinois, which is still there, by the way. It's, a, it's an interesting place to see. Um, very nice kind of upper middle class sort of, you know, lawyer's house. Um, and, and his wife, Mrs. Lincoln was very into that kind of thing and, uh, concerned about it, uh, better educated than him, more sophisticated than him. And, uh, she went about a major renovation and redecoration of the, of the house. I need to let you know, if you just joined us, we're with James B. Conroy talking about his book, Lincoln's White House. And we've been focusing on the White House itself, which is not really what the book focuses on. It more focuses on the people. And we'll get to that. Uh, you mentioned Mary. We've we've talked about Mary. How did he come to marry her? Meet her, marry her. Why? Yeah. Did, why did he choose her? Well, that's a good question. He he had a the a love of his life that uh, didn't work out. Um, who passed away at a young age, and uh, just devastated him. Um, he was introduced to her um, as a young man. She was, as I said, better educated from a higher social class than him. Uh, politically connected, important family, and um, who knows for sure, but I think he was attracted to all of that, yeah. you know, his way out of uh, his origins and the rest. And she, um, a lot of people said he would not have been president without her, that, he, you know, she drove him and uh, guided him and um, really made that possible for him. Uh, but She turned it, out to be, I guess, there's never a good time to bring this up, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, not well. Correct. Um, every, most people have heard, I think, to some extent about her mental uh, imbalance. And whatever you may have heard is, uh, is not only true, but unfortunately only part of the story. Um, there's a terrific historian who has become a friend called Michael Burlingame, who wrote a, the definitive current biography of Lincoln. And he's done terrific research on, on Mary, which... Um, I rolled into my book with his uh, cooperation, and um, she had all kinds of of difficult mental issues, one of which was a mania for shopping. She would go into a lady's shop and walk out with 20 pairs of kid gloves. Um, She would buy necklaces and earrings and rings that she never wore, Uh, just couldn't resist. Is that an illness? I think it's a kind of an illness, yeah. It's a mania. Was there... Other types of illness like schizophrenia, or were they all these sort of neuroses? Well, she was incredibly volatile. Um, she would become distraught over very minor, uh, really trivial things, uh, public scenes where she would literally throw th- things at him, um, uh, kind of freak out if another woman spoke to him at a party, make a public scene about it. She was very difficult. 
uh, did she ever troubled stray? person. Did either of them ever stray in their marriage? Well, there's no evidence, really, as a lawyer would say, uh, either way on that. But um, there is reason to suspect that Mrs. Lincoln had an affair uh, during their time in the White House, which is uh, discussed to some extent in the book. You have the Kennedys with their Camelot. You have the current president with his, you know, Jared Kushner and the various people he has. Who was the equivalent of that for President Lincoln? Well, Lincoln had only three staff people, as I mentioned. One was uh, 29 years old when he started, John Nicolay, a newspaper man from Illinois. Uh, there was a junior aide to him by the name of John Hay, who was a young lawyer uh, from Illinois. And then there was a third young staff guy, 25 years old, who was in charge basically of sorting the mail, which sounds trivial but wasn't so trivial because he would decide what got to the president, what didn't what was thrown away, and there was a lot of junk mail, a lot of hate mail. Uh, and, and mail, unless you showed up in person, was the only way to correct. get in touch. So he really was very powerful. He was important at 25 years old. And that's it. I mean, you could run the country then with three dudes. Three young guys, yeah, in their 20s. Um, it's amazing. And I'm talking clerical, professional. There was no other staff for the president. They Talk about everything. small government. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I guess it's a good time to get into the personalities of Nicolay and Hay. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned to you when I met you that you're fortunate because photography is pretty common now, and there was a picture of John Hay. Yeah. And I love the pictures because you get a, you can almost get a sense of the personality, the swagger of this young guy. He's leaning against a, a louvered kind of door yeah. the shutters on the white house actually yeah and he's got this brimmed hat but worn at a kind of jaunty angle mm -hmm. he seems how would you describe it um cocky yeah i would say cocky but in a very uh charming way that everybody who knew john hay from his college roommate on up and i've read a lot of their letters and diaries uh said there was never a, a more charming person that they met in their lives that he had this way about him that you couldn't talk for 10 minutes to John Hay without hearing him say something that you couldn't wait to go home and tell your wife or your friends because it was just a, a was it witty or was witty it or insightful or, you know, a spin on things that just put everything in place for you. And not only was he brilliant in that way, but he would somehow manage to attribute the inspiration for this great thought to you. Oh. So as one of his friends said, you would walk away not only impressed with John Hay, but also very impressed with yourself, which has got to be the definition of a charmer. Jeez, I have to remember. I wish I'd known <laughs> that that worked before, yeah. a long time ago. And what were his actual duties? So you've only got three people. Yeah. How did, what did John Hay do? And by the way, how did he get the gig? Did, was he involved in the campaign or anything? Yeah, well, all three of them were, really. Um, the elder of them, uh, John Nicolay at 29, was the president's private secretary. He was the only authorized staff person for the president of the United, Sta United States. <clears throat> Under the Congressional Budget and Appropriations, there was exactly one staff person for the president. And he made 75 bucks a month, plus uh, some came from his state, right? Yeah, and he lived, he, and he lived in the White House with, uh, with Hay. They had a bedroom in the White House. Um, Nicolay was born in Germany. He came here as a very young child, didn't have an accent, 
but he had, at the time, people were not sensitive about ethnic stereotypes, and he's described over and over as a Germanic character, you know, a very firm, strong, tough uh, kind of character. And his principal role, really, was to try to keep people out of Lincoln's office, or certainly one of them, you know, to try to screen people so he didn't spend all his time. This is Hay or Nicolay? Uh, Nicolay. Okay. Um, and generally a confidant and a, you know, a trusted uh, person to lean on. John Hay was uh, like five or six years younger than Nicolay, uh, a young lawyer in Springfield who happened to have his law offices adjacent to Lincoln's in Springfield. And Lincoln kind of took a shine to him, was no doubt taken in by the same charm everybody else was, and took him under his wing and brought him to Washington too. And then the third aide was 25 years old, uh, William Stoddard, um, a newspaper man uh, like Nicolay, and the three of them came with Lincoln to Washington. Well, if they only had three folks, it must not have been a lot in the day of the life of the president, right? What, can you go through that? Was it pretty slow, like some days to just be nothing going on, or was no. it always very busy? What would a day in the life be? Yeah, it, it was constant work, constant stress. Um, you got to think that apart from just running all the other things that a president runs, almost every moment of Lincoln's presidency was a civil war. Uh, so he could not have been more stressed than in that situation. I do a slide presentation for audiences, and uh, the opening uh, sequence of that is a photo of Lincoln in 1860 when he was elected, kind of young, vigorous, healthy, 51 years old. And by the end of those four years, he looks 75 years old, just totally, totally crushed by that weight. What are some things that he would actually have to do in a given day? Well, um, typically he would start the day with about an hour of personal reading just to kind of get himself into the day. He liked to read the Bible. He liked to read Shakespeare, um, sort of the old classics, Pilgrim's Progress, things like that. He'd spend an hour or so doing that, reading some newspapers. And then he'd get into the swing of things. And typically in the morning, there would be all kinds of visitors and callers and people coming asking for favors, congressmen, senators, things of that sort. Um, he would spend um, a couple of hours in the middle of the day. He'd have a very brief lunch. He'd spend time with the generals and the admirals and you know discussing military strategy and whatever was happening in the war. And um, he, as I said earlier, spent probably more than half his time just talking to ordinary people. He, he thought that that was one of the principal roles of the president, to make himself available to anyone who wanted to see him. And apart from making them feel better about that contact, he learned enormous scopes of things from these ordinary people. There was no polling in those days. And he would ask people, so what are you thinking about? What's going on in uh, Albany? Or, you know, what are people worried about in Baltimore? And he'd kind of get a feel for what was happening out there. Um, and, uh, you know, many of his staff and senior legislators were appalled that he spent so much of his time with ordinary people. But he said it was a major part of what he was brought there to do, and it, uh, it educated him. How involved was he in the legislative process? How, how much arm twisting was he doing? Well, in the uh, movie that was mentioned earlier, the uh, Spielberg movie, Lincoln, uh, 
there's a great deal of focus on exactly that, and there's a good bit of it in the book as well. Uh, he did a lot of that. He um, he was a politician and a brilliant politician, and uh, had been in Congress only one term. He'd served one two-year term in the House of Representatives, and that's the extent of all of his prior wow. federal uh, office holding. Um, but uh, a brilliant guy and a natural politician. He knew how people worked, how people think, and uh, had an ability, just a natural talent, to understand what they wanted and what he could give to them and what he needed from them. Really quite brilliant at it. Can you talk a little bit about the kids? Sure. Uh, there were two young boys in the house. There was also an older uh, boy or young man, uh, Robert, who was actually at Harvard uh, throughout uh, Lincoln's presidency and only came by for vacations and such. But the two young boys, um, I believe uh, Tad was around eight when uh, Lincoln was elected and Willie was a couple of years older. Willie was a very studious, kind of serious kid, also enjoyed pranking and, and playing uh, with his brother, but more of a quiet, studious, scholarly kind of kid. Uh, Tad was the opposite. Uh, John Hay uh, talked about him sort of totally undisciplined, running around the White House at will, jumping into cabinet meetings with a beating drum, um, coming up with all sorts of pranks and, uh, uh, and, and tricks that uh, entertained his father, but not necessarily everybody else. Uh, a lot about the boys in the book, actually. And Kate Chase. Yeah. She was a, a damsel who yeah, was very Kate, popular at the time. Kate Chase was the daughter of uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon Chase. I think she was in her early 20s, 22, 23, um, sort of the belle of Washington at the time, and um, broke a lot of hearts, including John Hayes. Uh, John Hay described her at one time as... Uh, only a little more lovely than any other woman, which I thought was a typical hay remark. Um, she married then a very wealthy senator from Rhode Island and um, rose even higher in the social ranks in Washington. So she was always kind of the, the great social figure at the White House. You talk about, you mentioned John Hay, and he was very well-spoken, and people loved to yeah. talk with him. But in general, at the time... People were much better with the English language, correct? It's, it's amazing. You read letters from that time, and apart from the penmanship, which sometimes looks like a, a diploma, you know, just flawless penmanship, really well-written, careful letters um, at all levels that you come across, diaries, letters, and the rest. And, um, yeah, people were much more formal in those days. They referred to each other by, you know, their... Last name would be Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith. Uh, even friends would would call each other by by that formality, and um, a very different culture in terms of how people respected each other and dealt with each other. It just it almost seems like they had more words at their command that we've that our lexicon has shrunk down to where it's pretty boring really, yeah. compared to. Yeah. And they just seemed to be able to turn a phrase better. Even kids, even uneducated kids like that were 19 and 20 in the, battle, in the battlefield. Correct. I think some of that had to do with schooling. In, in other 
major element of it was there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no internet. So what you did is you sat in the in the front room and you you talked, and I think people learned how to converse and how to present themselves and speak better than we do. There is you don't focus on military much, but you do have a military story in the book. Yeah, there's one military story I, I enjoy because uh, I think it reveals Lincoln's character. There was a uh, I believe it was a major, a relatively junior officer who writes about going into the president's house and into Lincoln's office with a group of more senior officers, generals, who uh, were uh, discussing some important issue with Lincoln and Seward, his secretary of state. And this young officer chimes in with an opinion, and uh, Seward turned on him and said, uh, when junior officers need to be heard from, we'll let you know, and kind of barked at him. And uh, the young guy was just kind of subdued and crushed by that. And after a minute or two, when nobody noticed and they were engaged in something else, Lincoln got up from his seat and walked over to the end of the table where this young man was, put his hand around the back of his neck and just kind of squeezed him by the back of the neck and smiled at him and then wandered back over to his seat. The officer said, I have loved Lincoln from that day forward. I think that tells you a lot about the character of the president of the United States. The detail in this book, folks, is exquisite. And I don't have it. I don't know how you managed to get the detail. And I do believe you got it, but it must have taken some kind of work. Folks, just listen to this. As the presidential coach rattled down the cobblestones past the oddly mixed crowd lining Pennsylvania Avenue, Lincoln raised his hat to scattered applause. Buchanan looked at his shoes. And the wind blew from the blew in grit from the dirt across dirt cross streets, and you didn't just make that up. That's you have evidence that that was really wind was really blowing dirt across the cross streets. Yeah, I think detail really brings uh, stories to life. And if you read heavily in newspapers, diaries, letters, memoirs, you find nuggets, and they they sort of leap out at 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 you, and you can collect those and make almost a cinematic story out of it, which is what I try to do. And you're a local gentleman, correct? Yeah, I live in Hingham, Massachusetts, and uh, I've worked in Boston for 37 years. And you have another project, I the do. Jefferson book. Uh, I have a kind of prequel to this book coming out in roughly in August called Jefferson's White House, which is set 65 years earlier at a, at a time when Washington really was a swamp, literal swamp, and very little else. And Jefferson was in that that actual White House. Was he was. It, was, was yeah. it brand new, like a few years old, all it, shiny bright? Yeah, John Adams had lived there for just a few months uh, when Jefferson took over. He was the first president to spend his entire term in the White House. He must have liked it because he was such a dandy. He loved uh, buildings and uh, furniture and architecture, and spent a lot of time uh, improving the White House and making it. Uh, what it should be. He's, it's going to be interesting to kind of compare Lincoln to Jefferson. They were opposite in a lot of way. Yeah, he very went different. shopping for fine red leather gloves yeah. and collected stuff like that, and that was exactly the opposite from Lincoln. Yeah, Jefferson was a born aristocrat, and Lincoln was born, you know, in a cabin, and uh, they could not have been much different as far as their temperaments and backgrounds went but uh, two of the great men of our, of our country. 
All right, really appreciate you coming in. A lot of people wouldn't have come in. They would have said, it's too far. There's a storm coming. I'm, I'm not coming in, but you came in and I appreciate it. We all appreciate it, don't we, folks? Oh, it's my pleasure. James B. Conroy, Lincoln's White House, the People's House in wartime. There you go. Another episode of the Jay Talking Podcast. Remember, you can always catch the show live every weeknight, starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. You can subscribe to the podcast where you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. And follow me on Twitter for show updates. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.